When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So clawbacks, as the name implies, are policies that a company can adopt as part of their employment contracts with senior executives, named executive officers, maybe board directors, other very senior people in the company, where they, the company reserves the right to claw back some compensation the company has paid you if, for some reason, you don't deserve that pay anymore. This is Tom Fox. In this episode of Compliance into the Weeds, myself and Matt Kelly take a deep dive into the recent speech by Kenneth Polite on the institution of clawbacks in a compliance program for a company that's in an FCPA enforcement action. We both believe this will be a big jolt to compliance. Compliance into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. But first, quick message from our sponsor. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox and Matt Kelly back for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. We talk about a lot of compliance-related topics in Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to talk about compliance. There were two major announcements from the Department of Justice last week, the first in the form of the Monaco Memo, which was released by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. The second was a speech by Kenneth Polite released on Friday, a speech he made to the University of Texas School of Law. We're going to focus on the Polite speech today. So, Matt, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome. And can I, maybe I start with... Big picture, why was the Polite speech so significant and so important for compliance professionals? Yeah, this really, the last week was a big deal for corporate compliance officers because I think really the Lisa Monaco memo sketched out a lot of big things, but Kenneth Polite's speech, which he delivered on Friday afternoon down at the University of Texas, and they snuck the text of his speech onto the Justice Department website at like, 4.58 p.m. on a Friday. I happened to notice it on Saturday because I have no life and had nothing better to do. But Polite's speech really took some of the key themes that Lisa Monaco had raised and fleshed them out in much more detail that would be relevant to corporate compliance officers. So he talked quite a bit about voluntary self-disclosure. He talked quite a bit about the importance of a culture of compliance, but what that would really look like. And I think we could zero in very specifically on what he said about clawback clauses for executive compensation, because clearly the Justice Department thinks that is going to be a vehicle 
to establish a culture of compliance. I think they're probably right, but there are some pretty big implications, I think, of having those policies and that being the standard or the benchmark by which your culture of compliance might be analyzed. One of several benchmarks, but a big one. So we talked a lot about that. And he also talked about certification of the compliance program by CCOs as part of settling a corporate resolution. And pretty much like, folks, that's coming. And in fact, it already has come in the Glencore settlement. We're going to see it more often. We can talk about those details, Tom's, but, Tom, but it's those kind of very specific things that are highly relevant to corporate compliance officers that make me say, if you had to study one talk or the other, study Kenneth Polite's speech. With all due respect to the Deputy Attorney General, Assistant AG Polite is really, he's where your career and your job is at, and you've got to read his speech. I'm not prepared to go that far because I thought his remarks actually tied directly into the Monaco memo, and I thought the Monaco memo had some additional parts around monitors that were important. Nevertheless, what you just hit on is extremely important. So maybe we could start with, let's go into the weeds on what clawbacks are, how the elite or perhaps the DOJ envisions them being used, and why this is or is not a change. So clawbacks, as the name implies, are policies that a company can adopt as part of their employment contracts with senior executives, named executive officers, maybe board directors, other very senior people in the company, where they, the company reserves the right to claw back some compensation the company has paid you if, for some reason, you don't deserve that pay anymore. The most obvious example being if you scored a big performance bonus that subsequently it comes out, you achieve that performance based on fraud, the company might have wherewithal to claw that money back. It is not unusual. It's not a new thing in the executive compensation world. But uh, Lisa Monaco, in her speech uh, on Thursday, said that they really want to see that more often. And that would be one of the hallmarks of having a culture of compliance is that the company is determined to claw back money from the offending individuals if it turns out that they have some sort of misconduct scandal. Now, what really caught my eye about Kenneth Polite's speech is that he first talked about how the criminal division is looking at ways to, quote, shift the burden of corporate financial penalties away from shareholders, who in many times do not have a role in misconduct, onto those more directly responsible, close quote. So he's talking about financial penalties and how do we get them away from shareholders onto somebody else. And then he went on to say this, and this I think is worth quoting at length, so bear with me here. In the coming months, our team will be meeting with, among others, our agency partners and experts on executive compensation gathering relative data points based on these inputs. The criminal division will then provide further guidance on how prosecutors will consider and reward corporations that develop and apply compensation clawback policies. My inference from that is that they're looking at some way to offset or reduce corporate penalties if you, the company, can get the money back from the offending executives. I don't know if that's going to be a one-for-one exchange. I I'm not sure mathematically that would work out a lot, but I think the the bottom line is you want lower penalties as a company, have some clawback policies in place, and then go claw back the money from the offending individuals. Do all of that, 
we're going to cut you a break on the corporate penalties you might pay. That's what I take away from police speech when you read between the lines. And I don't think it's very far-fetched of an interpretation. I don't think I have to read very deeply into that to come to that conclusion. But Tom, what do you think? So under the federal sentencing guidelines, companies under the formula use, there is a calculation based upon the amount of profit which was generated by the company, and that's in a corporate action. If it's an individual, you look at the, in, the amount of money the individual made. But here, it's, that would seem to indicate you're looking at an individual's profit or remuneration or some other monetary amount against the overall corporate profit. When the sentencing guidelines work, you take the profit, you run it through a formula, you looked at how pervasive the conduct was, you look at how many people the company has, you look at length of time, and then you apply discount factors. Discount factors include whether or not you've accepted responsibility for your actions, whether or not you self-disclosed, and whether or not you cooperated. The federal incentives guidelines do not include a discount for having or creating an effective compliance program. That's a separate component applied after the federal sentencing guidelines amount is created. From that calculation I just detailed, you then get a range high to low, or rather you get a number and you multiply that, then you get the range from a high low, high to a low fine. So 10 million to 40 million, 100 million to 500 million, something like that. Then the department, in ways that are only known to the department, figures out what the number is within that range. And there's not a lot of transparency in that last calculation. At that point, you can apply the discounts created by the corporate enforcement, the FCPA corporate enforcement program, which include an amount for self-disclosure, an amount for cooperation, and an amount for remediation. That can include up to 50% if there's a penalty which includes something other than a declination. So I'm not quite sure how you could factor in a discount when the calculations of the corporate penalty are all based on what the corporation did. You could have a component for having clawbacks, an actual clawback, but that amount is going to be absolutely minuscule compared to overall corporate profits or overall fine and penalty, because then you would have to figure out the individuals involved if they were subject to clawback and then how much money they got in the form of a bonus based upon the illegal conduct. So obviously I don't see how you could give a a dollar for dollar credit discounting the overall corporate penalty under the sentencing guidelines. You could perhaps make that a part of the corporate enforcement policy but you've already got cooperation and remediation as part of the discounts. So I would have assumed that the clawbacks would fall into the remediation component because that includes discipline of those involved or those who turned a blind eye to the bribery and corruption. I've been writing about clawbacks for six or seven years, and there's lots of formulas for clawbacks. But once you get to the senior executive level or the board level, a clawback is generally some percentage of an annual bonus. And we have seen some large amounts, particularly in the Goldman Sachs 
uh, under the prior Goldman Sachs administration of Lord Lloyd Blankenfeld. So clawbacks have been employed. They have been employed for large dollar amounts, but that was based on bonuses, which were very large dollar amounts. And I guess the final concern I have is typically the Tom Foxes and Matt Kellys of the world, although we might rise to the level of CCO, we're not in a position where we have an employment contract that has clawbacks written into it. We may be an at-will employee who may have a salary, and that may be a very high salary with stock options as part of our overall performance or our compensation package. But to get the significant dollars, I think you, you have to go to a senior executive level. And then, once again, we have seen senior executives specifically involved in corruption enforcement actions, or at least allegations that they engaged in bribery and corruption, but it's few and far between. It's typically somebody's turned a blind eye. So I applaud the effort. I'm not sure that it would be more than a part of the current existing discount under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, Matt. See, I am struggling with this because I agree with a lot of what you say, but very clearly you see what their objective is that they're trying to get at is to make senior executives take this much more seriously. And you do that by making the senior executives realize they have skin in the game. So as I was listening to you, Tom, I was thinking also about the aggravating circumstances that the Justice Department likes to talk about when enforcing against corporate misconduct. Could they say that senior executives turning a blind eye to misconduct of the minions would be an aggravating factor. Now, I don't dispute that if it's just an assistant vice president and a regional manager doing misconduct, no, they're probably not even with stock options going to be making $20 million in equity awards or something like that. But a CEO could, a CFO could, depending on the company, that's not unreasonable. And then suddenly it is real money. So would this lead to some scenario where that's what the Justice Department might look for. Like, they're going to try and squeeze where it hurts. And that's where it'll hurt, is if you squeeze the senior executives who have tens of millions in equity awards that are tied up, or, I don't know, long-term pensions or something. Could it be the nature of the clawback clause is they want to see? Rather than clawing back performance pay, could you invalidate a retirement account? And then suddenly a 58-year-old CEO is saying, geez, now what am I going to do? And I might have a felony conviction on my record. I'm not going to get a job. There are scenarios that I would foresee aggressive prosecutors wanting to to be able to jolt the C-suite that we are serious. We want you to take this with the utmost attention. And therefore, we are going to do this. I also think that the other part we have to remember about this clawback for penalties offsetting or reducing or whatever it is, like, Politically, that's pretty shrewd because who's going to oppose this? Republicans hate the idea of corporate penalties because it harms the shareholders. Okay, we're going to let the shareholders get a break. And who's going to say, no, we don't want clawbacks. Those executives who commit misconduct, they should be able to keep all the money that they want. I don't think there's a natural constituency to argue against this. My question is just how much will this jolt the C-suite that they're going to have to do it? And I potentially could see it could be a jolting thing, depending on exactly what the criminal division comes up with. Like Polite said, he's going to be consulting for a couple of months and he's going to have guidelines. I don't know what those are, but I'm you know, sure as hell I'm dying to see them when they come out eventually. 
I love it when you give us the episode title within the context of your remarks. So we have the jolting edition. And I want to focus on that word because that really encapsulated, Matt, for me, something that I took away from the police speech, which was a a real change in tone from the Department of Justice. Yes. And he said it several times to jolt the C-suite into action. But I also saw it as a wider effort to put more responsibility on the on companies to prevent bribery and corruption, not just we'll clean it up and pay some penalty after it happens. But this really seemed to me to be a part of an overall push. They are really putting the onus on companies together with the enhanced requirements regarding self-disclosure to do something and to do something significant, literally all the way up to the CEO's level. And I don't know if that's out of frustration. I don't know if that's out of ideological concern. I don't know if it's just 180 degrees different from Rod Rosenstein and a quote, light touch, end quote, or something else. But it strikes me as this is a something that we need to pay attention to really from not simply a strategic basis, but almost a philosophical basis. I agree with that. And I was struck that in what I've written about the polite speech, I used the word jolt, I think a few times, and then I posted it on LinkedIn. I did not use the word jolt in my posting on it of driving people to read what I had written, but several people were commenting saying, clearly the DOJ is shaking things up. There's all sorts of metaphors like that. Yes, I think that is true. All they seem to be talking about now is how they can get companies to cooperate with the department to prosecute the individuals. We can zigzag back to the Monaco speech for a moment where she talked a bit about turning over evidence for individual wrongdoers much more quickly. That's going to have to happen. But she also had mentioned clawbacks. And now here's Polite talking about clawbacks even in more detail, that he wants to turn that pressure up while turning down the pressure on corporate penalties. Clearly, if you are a board, that is going to be a strong incentive for you because people are not wrong when they say corporate penalties hurt shareholders. Yes, they do. And boards represent the shareholders. So if boards have an opportunity to restructure the governance and oversight, and that helps the shareholders, this is their big shot. They could maybe move away a bit from the threat of corporate penalties by telling management, implement these clawbacks and implement them and exercise them aggressively. And that gets what the Justice Department is trying to achieve. But uh, yeah, I'm not surprised by the direction of any of this, but I am surprised by the sort of clarity and boldness or ferocity that they're pushing with these these pronouncements right now. The proof is still going to be in the pudding of enforcements and what happens and who is going to have their pay clawed back and who is going to face a felony charge or that kind of thing. We haven't seen much of that yet, but it's going to be coming sooner or later. Maybe if we could tie this to some of the other remarks that I found in the Polite speech around CCO certification. And, yeah. and once again, I think you're spot on to say that whatever questions, queries, concerns you and I or anybody else had, CCO certifications are here and they're here to stay. They talked about some of the other considerations that the department will look at in the decision of what type of settlement to make. And they talked about things like length of the bribery scheme, the pervasiveness of the bribery scheme across the organization. 
it whether or not the compliance program was in inadequately designed or it was designed fine and they just completely overrode the controls that were put in place. So it seemed to me that much more pressure is is brought to bear on corporate compliance programs and corporations from this speech than than we had previously seen. And I think the clawbacks are just one component of this at this point. I'd like to focus in on what Polite said about the CCO certifications, because like it's no secret, Tom, you and I and numerous others have raised plenty of questions about how this would work in practice. I'm unconvinced that this is a either practical or wise idea, but I'm not the only one who said it. You're not the only one who said it. There's a lot of compliance officers who've told me behind the scenes they've said it. Clearly, Polite has heard this criticism. And this is a response to those questions and skepticism and criticism out there. But basically in his speech, he told compliance officers, if you want to sit at the big kids table, this is the price. And I'm not sure that's really the message that's going to resonate all that well. But again, his words are worth quoting at length here. So let me find it. These certifications and other resources are empowering you, the compliance officer, you to demand that voice in corporate decision making. A corporate leader who ignores the emphasis we are placing on compliance does so at his or her own risk. But you cannot shy away from this role. You cannot run away from this responsibility. I'm not quite sure what to say about that, except what I mentioned earlier. My takeaway is that he's telling everybody, you want to sit at the big kids table. This is what that means. I still think in many practical ways, I don't get how that works. I would give you one example right away. So this is an example that Polite had mentioned in his speech was also last week, in addition to everything else, they had an FCPA settlement where a Brazilian airline, Goal Airlines, I think, or G-O-L, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but they paid $41 million to settle FCPA charges. Okay, nothing new there. They did avoid a compliance monitor because they had revamped their compliance program. Excellent. Love it. But the CCO and the CEO must certify at the end of a three-year deferred prosecution agreement. So it is that 2025. They'll have to certify that the program is still working and is reasonably designed and is preventing and detecting misconduct and all of this. So here's my question. What happens if the CCO just gets abducted by aliens two years from now? Who signs that in the third year? Do they have a new CCO? Does that person get to review the program that was put in place for this DPA that was signed today? What if the CCO and the CO disagree? What if Goal Airlines gets acquired by somebody else and now there's a different chief compliance officer for the parent company and the one who's in charge of compliance at Goal is some senior manager of ethics and compliance? How does all of this work in a practical level? Because that kind of stuff happens every day. And I don't think that this CCO certification idea reflects that reality. Or if it does, I can't see the reflection. I don't know. Tom, if you have any thoughts on this, I'd be eager for somebody to tell me how any of these questions can make sense. I guess I've been focusing on a different aspect of this question, Matt, because I've been trying to think through what happens if a CCO declines to certify? Yeah. And obviously they can be terminated. What effect would that have on the Department of Justice? Will the CCO, if they decline to certify, would they get the resources, either monetary or headcount, that they believe is necessary? 
I hope they didn't wait till the end of a three-year period, whether it be NPA, DPA, or other, to come to the conclusion that we do not have a compliance program which meets the reasonable expectations of our settlement agreements. And how do you fix it if you decline to certify? What's the remedy to get to certification? Does it automatically extend the NPA, DPA, or other settlement agreement out? And how bad is your relationship going to be with your CEO going forward? And I guess the point I drew from both Polite Speech and your blog post, which we're going to link to in the show notes, is no matter what the answers to those questions are, Tom Fox, CEOs are going to have to certify. That is true. CCOs and CEOs are both going to have to certify. I think Polite is very clear on that. But I like I think that if the CCO is in a position where they don't want to certify, but the chief executive is leaning on you to certify, I wouldn't take that job unless I had a contract for three years. Or could we see something as far reaching as the Justice Department, including that a contract must be there and you can't fire the CCO without cause, without Justice Department approval? That would be a pretty radical idea. It is not unheard of in India, of all countries to talk about here. So in India, they actually do have a law that a bank chief compliance officer cannot be fired without approval of banking regulators, unless there's actual cause, they're drunk on the job or something like that. But in India, the CCO in the banking world needs a contract for three years, and they have to stay on the job, and you can't fire them without regulatory approval. Could we see something like that here? Because that would insulate the CCO from the friction that we're talking about. I also question whether this might, some companies to think, this is so important we want the general counsel to be the CCO and we're going to keep it that way. Or will the Justice Department make that split be part of the original DPA to get to the certifying part in the first place? I'm not sure. But Tom, here is my big thought about all of this. Tie all of this together. Let's say you are a compliance officer and you're pushing now for a three-year so that you won't be caught sandbagged by a CEO who wants you to sign when you're not confident. You have a three-year contract. We just, for the first 15 or 20 minutes of this podcast, talked about clawback policies and senior executives might get held more responsible for misconduct that happens on their watch. Now we have the CCOs certifying the effectiveness of the program. I could foresee a scenario where the company would start saying, Sure, compliance officer, we'll give you a contract. And if we have a failure, we're going to claw back your compensation. I don't think that's far-fetched. And I floated this scenario to several CEOs who were not at all thrilled that I put it in their brain because now they can't unsee it. But they did say that's not out of the realm of possibility, is that if senior executives might find that their equity compensation, their retirement plans are on it's their neck in the noose. I could easily see them turning around saying, no, no, compliance officer, I want to make personal assurance out of this. If I'm going down for it, you're going down too. You certified this. You told me the program was good and now it's not. And now my money is at stake. No way. I'm going down. You're CCO. You're going down with me. I could see that dynamic taking root in the fullness of time. Somebody talk me out of that because I don't like that idea at all, but I can't get it out of my head. 
I'm not going to try and talk you out of it, but we're now in the situation where I see a business justification for that. Typically, it's you see it where I'm the one going off the rails. Here's the business justification I see in that position, Matt. We are going to hire you, Mr. Joe Smith, as our CCO. You have one metric, and that metric is to get us through our DPA with a certification at the end. That certification holds up. We're going to claw back a part of your compensation if that if you give that certification and that certification is later held to, to have been incorrectly or even negligently given because that's the metric we're going to grade you on. That's fair for us to claw back or recover some portion of your compensation. Actually, I see that as a logical because it's based on a measurable metric that can then later be evaluated by a third party independent of the CCO certification itself. See, the sad thing is, I think there's a lot of sense in what you're saying. And I raised that up to a compliance officer who said, great, because that sucks. Now I'm going to have to run around even more being the department of no, because I'm not going to let anything jeopardize my equity compensation or whatever policy or money I might have at stake. But that dynamic might be in the interest of the company. But then response from a compliance officer would really to be even more I hesitate to say draconian. I don't know how many of them are these days, but even more attentive to the risk of misconduct throughout the organization and hectoring employees even more about the wonders and joys of proper compliance. And a lot of employees already don't like compliance officers. I'm not sure this is going to foster a good, healthy relationship between compliance and the rest of the business because compliance is going to have a lot of incentive. Be the jackass about it because I don't want to lose my money either. There are forces in motion here that I think are going to take us to a place nobody really was expecting. And maybe I don't see anybody who would naturally want it either. I was going to say unintended consequences, but since we're talking about the consequences, I can't say that they were unintended. But beyond the land of no, think about the discussion we had on an earlier podcast about training and certification of training by a compliance function and what that might mean if every employee has to take every course with a certification that they passed a test on that course. And the additional cost, doesn't matter what your training was before or perhaps even whether you're a gatekeeper or not, and we both could envision a CCO being very stern about that and mandating no exceptions. That's going to draw the process out. It's going to increase cost. And I think that's a direct consequence of having the certification. And now if we multiply that in the areas of due diligence on third parties, approval of sales agents, distributors, resellers, approval of joint venture partners, all of those things that have some discretion and your discretion now becomes much narrower because you are concerned that you as CCO have to personally certify on this. And if your certification is incorrect, you are going to lose money. I can just see a lot more time and cost more than just simply being the bad guy from, or as I would say, Dr. No from the land of no. Yeah. So maybe this is beyond the scope of what we want to talk about just on this podcast, but I think there's a lot to unpack and consider here about the potential 
compensation and career impacts on compliance officers. But Tom, you and I are talking like compliance officers make boatloads of money. And I'm sure any number of them would already be laughing at that because a lot of them don't. A lot of them don't necessarily get equity awards or anything like that. But would they start asking for it? Because this might be a higher risk job. Our company's going to give it to them. Um, one uh, compliance officer, in fact, we've been talking about the police speech for half an hour. We should remember the Monaco memo which also talks about repeat offenses and recidivist corporate offenders, there are compliance officers already telling me because of that, they could foresee scenarios where compliance officers will job hop more often because you do not want on your record that you've already presided over a company that had a failure uh, because then you might not be hireable anymore. So get out of there. I'm not entirely sure how this might affect that. But that's why I said the police speech alone is really very consequential for compliance officers. Take some time to read it. In the Monaco memo, also very consequential. Take time, read that too. There's just so much stuff that got thrown out there for compliance officers at the end of last week. So, Matt, you've convinced me we need to do another podcast on the Monica memo, but perhaps we can do that at a later time. But we're, like I said, we're going to link to your blog post, and I think we're going to be visiting and talking about this a lot. All right, Tom. Thank you very much. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I've got a special five-part podcast series running on innovation and compliance about the intersection of supply chain and compliance. We take a look at ESG drivers, product compliance, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, the Scope 3 Emissions Responses, and Responsible Minerals. This podcast series is sponsored by Ascent Compliance. If you're interested in the intersection of ESG and supply chain, this podcast is the podcast for you. Check it out on the Innovation and Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.